We are in Colossians chapter 1. So we're walking through the book of Colossians, still in chapter 1. Today, verse 10. So if you have your Bible, you can open to Colossians 1.10, and I'm going to pray. Father, we don't really know what humility is. Not to its fullest. And that's why you humble us to learn. And so with whatever amount of humility you have developed in me, I pray that you would spend it all so that I would submit to your word, that we would submit to your word, and you would use it to work mightily and powerfully in our lives so that we would not just download information today, but that that information would cause transformation in our lives so we'd be more like Christ. Pray that Jesus is who is heard and seen this morning. And pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you guys to think of a really big and delicious meal that you've had in the past. Maybe something like a Thanksgiving dinner. That's probably the first thing that comes to your mind. First thing that comes to my mind is pizza. But that's because I love pizza, and one year when we lived in Montana, uh, we didn't have a lot of friends. We had just moved there. We had Thanksgiving. We had just moved there like a, a month before. It was Thanksgiving. We didn't have anyone to have Thanksgiving with. Our family lives in Wisconsin. We were in Montana. My wife spent all morning making this big Thanksgiving meal, and we ate it at like 11 in the morning. So by like 4 o'clock, I'm starving, and I'm like, I do not want Thanksgiving food again. And I said, hey, family, how do you guys feel about pizza for thanksgiving and our children were excited so we i ran to the store and got some pizza anyways that's a sidetrack that's not even my point i just i want you to think of a a really delicious big meal and i think the first thing we think of is that hearty stuffing of a meal that we call thanksgiving dinner so think about the food at that thanksgiving meal turkey mashed potatoes stuffing Green bean casserole. Some of you guys like that. I'm not a fan. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Thanksgiving at Lon's house this year. Good. Uh, cranberry sauce, right? Uh, and then, you know, top it all off with, I don't know, three or four pieces of pie, right? I'm sorry, five or six pieces of pie. <laughs> What am I missing? What else? What else do you have for Thanksgiving dinner? Tacos. Ta tacos? Okay. Sorry, Lon. We're having Thanksgiving dinner at the Coles. Tacos it is. What else? What else? This is interaction time. Tell me. What, what else do you have for... What did I miss? Sweet potatoes. Ham. Uh, what else? What about marshmallows in the sweet potatoes? Or is that a given? That's a given. Dinner rolls. What do you put on your what do you put on your turkey? Gravy. Gravy. Right. Okay. So think of a big filling hearty meal. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up. 
Is there anything I'm missing in this meal? Prayer. Pray, pray before you eat. True. Elka seltzer. Good, 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 good. That brings up a good point. What are you going to put that Elka seltzer in? A drink. Notice that nobody said milk, water, coffee, something to drink, right? Right? Can you imagine trying to stuff all that food into your mouth without having the opportunity to cleanse your palate with a drink? You wouldn't make it. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that none of you are going to fill your Thanksgiving plate in a couple of weeks, right? And sit down without first grabbing a big glass of milk or water or coffee or just something to drink. Now that meal, all that food, it sounds good in our mind, but in real life, you, would, you wouldn't even sit down without that glass, without that drink. In life, we find that there are some things that are just inseparable. You don't eat without something to drink. Food and drink are inseparable. They go together. Or, as Colossians 1.10 shows us, knowledge and action are inseparable. Without each other, together, knowledge and action are fruitless. So, in verse 10, we're actually picking up in the middle of Paul's prayer. And in verse 10, he starts telling us about some results. And the result is, verse 10, that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That is the general aim and goal of this text. And the way in which we walk, the way in which that worthy walk is expressed in your life is that your life is, and he goes on in verse 10, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So our desired action should be to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But what is that a result of? How is that produced? What creates a walk that is worthy of the Lord? Verse 9 tells us, so verse 9 sets the stage for the result in verse 10, which is walking worthy. And verse 9 tells us, Be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what you'll notice is that the beginning of verse 9 and the end of verse 10 both tell us that we should gain knowledge. Except in verse 9, it's an expectation. It's not a command, it's Paul's prayer, but in, in a sense, it's kind of like a command. He's praying that, they, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and then at the end of verse 10, it becomes a result that we would increase in the knowledge of God, meaning knowledge begets knowledge. The more knowledge we get, the more our walk is worthy of him, and the more our walk is worthy of him, the more we desire to acquire his knowledge. And with that newfound knowledge, we increase our walk again, and then we gain knowledge again, and then we increase our walk again, and so on and so forth. And it's this glorious cycle of knowledge and action. Knowledge begetting knowledge. The more you understand his will, the more you desire to learn his will. And that is at the heart of this text, the relationship between knowledge and action. Not just gaining knowledge in our head, but living it out. Growth in knowledge is, 
a common theme from Paul in all of his letters. I mean, look at 2 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. The language of Paul's prayer here in verse 9 is intense. It's an intense, in the Greek, it's very intense in, its, in, it, in his heart. You can feel like Paul's heart kind of being poured out in the words that he writes because he knows that spiritual knowledge is the foundation of a fruitful Christian life. But what good is knowledge without action? The knowledge is in here, but the fragrance of knowledge that we spread is in our conduct, in our action. The Christian who reads and studies and learns all day and every day, but, but does not serve or love or give or sacrifice, is a worthless Christian. They offer nothing to the kingdom. The only thing that their knowledge increases is their ego and self-confidence. Knowledge without action is like a vehicle without a transmission. Has an engine, it's filled with gas, it runs, but it can't go anywhere. It serves no practical purpose. That's a Christian with knowledge, but no conduct. It's a waste of space and material. Therefore, knowledge and action are inseparable in the Christian life. Your knowledge influences how you behave and your behavior becomes a means to gain more knowledge one without the other is fruitless and pointless and this is really we have to understand the first century jew if we're going to understand what paul is really doing here for the first century jew the idea of knowledge and conduct were inseparable today i have to tell you that they're inseparable because we don't really connect them all the time. We think about scholars who sit in their offices and write papers and think, 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 and read, 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 and they have a bunch of knowledge, but they don't live it. They don't have to live it. They're scholars. We think of the overzealous believer who doesn't know the Bible at all but runs around as a soul winner just preaching Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They know one or two Bible verses. They Maybe they know the, the Romans road or how to share the gospel, but they don't know God. They haven't experienced God long enough. They haven't lived the life of Christ yet enough, and they don't have knowledge. And both those people have their place in God's kingdom, but we wouldn't call either of them a mature, flourishing believer. Because they're missing either conduct or knowledge. So, and that exists in our world today. And, and, and so today, I have to tell you, knowledge and conduct are inseparable. To the first century Jew, it was a given. It didn't even need to be said. It was the way of their culture. It was how they were raised. To them, if you did not do it, then you did not know it. That was an unspoken reality. And if you did it, then you knew it. If you served, they would know that you know the righteous value of serving. If you gave, they would know that you know the righteous value of giving. If you did not do those things, then they would know that you do not know those things. 
You either knew it or you didn't, and the evidence was not in what knowledge you could recite, but in your conduct. And this idea that Paul is preaching strikes directly at the nerve of the heretical issue that existed in Colossae. The heretics and false teachers who were the Gnostics hinged their entire theology on the importance of knowledge. Knowledge was everything that was the key component to being a Gnostic is knowledge, information. To them, to the Gnostics, all matter, all material, all physical things were considered purely evil. Therefore, all non-physical things, such as thoughts or ideas or any form of knowledge, was the only true expression of holiness and goodness. Meaning the Gnostics sought to gain knowledge and then they also tried to convince the Colossians that all they needed to do was know and how they lived their life was irrelevant because your life is an expression out of your physical body and your physical bodies are purely evil because they're matter, they're physical. So any seemingly good action or holy conduct performed with our bodies or with our hands or with our feet was evil. So the Gnostics preached that knowledge and action were completely detached from each other. To know is what mattered most. To do was irrelevant because all your body could do is evil. So you didn't have to follow up knowledge with action. That was what the Gnostics were preaching. And Paul's going, excuse me, what? That's impossible. They cannot be separated. And that's why Paul preaches this idea of knowledge and action because, that, because of that heretical preaching and false doctrine, that false gospel that was starting to grow in Colossae. So Paul intentionally and intensely attacks this false dichotomy with the truth about the interwoven relationship between knowledge and action. As we learn about Jesus and understand God more and experience His Spirit through reading and studying the Word, prayer, preaching, teaching, and all other forms of learning, what we will gain is in verse 9, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, if that was the aim, if all spiritual wisdom and understanding was the aim, if that was our goal, then that would be that. You could come to church on Sunday morning. I would preach information to your brain. You would download the information into your brain. You would say, information received. I now know more things. Thank you very much. I'm going to go home and not change anything about my life because I've done my duty. I have gained all spiritual wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God's will. So, done. Christian life achieved. Information received. Knowledge gained. That's it. However, the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding is not the goal. Verse 9 is not the goal. Verse 9 is a means to the goal. The goal is the result of getting that spiritual knowledge and understanding and wisdom. The goal is the results that Paul mentions in verse 10. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the aim. That's the result of knowledge. So verse 9 tells us to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and the result is the action to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
former Dallas Cowboys head coach, Jimmy Johnson, back in the 90s, made a promise, made a, made a brag, really. Said they were going to win the Super Bowl. Said, we're going to win the Super Bowl? It's a pretty heavy brag. And then they did. And when they did, he said, if you're going to talk to talk, you got to walk the walk. It's a common phrase. We've all heard it, right? The walk is the doing. You can talk the talk all day, but it means nothing unless you walk the walk. And the whole point is that the talk, the, le- the learning, the teaching, the gaining of knowledge is meant to lead to the way that you walk. The walk is the doing, the action, the outpouring of our knowledge that we gain. And the word walk here in Greek is a, a common first century word that signified the totality of the active Christian life. So when Paul says to them, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord... They clearly understood that Paul meant that as you grow in the knowledge of God, put it to use or it's useless and you never really learned it. I'll give you an example. An example in a mathematical equation. Okay, here's the math problem. If any of you can answer this, you're very smart. Expand the the logarithm of 11 over yx. Can anybody do that? Yeah, it's a tough one. I don't even know what it means. I just like, I just looked it up and I was like, I like Googled tough math problems. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, that's something I have no idea what it means. I bet no one else does either. 11, the, expand the logarithm of 11 over yx. I did look up the answer, forgot it, so I don't know what it is. So even if you knew it, if you told me like 32, I'd be like, yeah, probably. So. You don't know it. I don't know it. Right? It, at best, we, we might be able to do, you know, if, you, if I gave you a little time, you might be able to pull out some former information you learned and remember maybe how to solve it. Or if you get a little time to do some research, you might be able to figure it out. But here's the thing. If you took calculus at any point in high school or college, which you probably did if you went to college, then you did learn this at some point. But do you know it? You don't. Maybe you knew it, but you don't know it. The point is one that my college professor taught me about the way our brains work. And his phrase was simply, use it or lose it. That's how our brains work. That's how we store information. You use it, and if you don't use it, you will eventually lose it. There are some things that kind of hang around in the back of our mind for a long time, but essentially, use it or lose it. You can't expand the logarithm of 11 over yx because you don't do calculus anymore, right? Well, most of us don't. You lost it because you don't do it. You knew it at one point, but you don't know it anymore because you never put it to use. Knowledge without action is pointless and useless. And without action, the knowledge fades into the background of our mind to the point where we no longer are capable of being motivated toward the appropriate action because we don't use it. So knowledge gained becomes fruitless if you don't use it and it it fades into the distance of, of a memory that we no longer have because we don't live it anymore. Kent Hughes, a theologian, says it like this. A profound knowledge should profoundly affect one's walk. 
it must be understood that any doctrine that isolates the believer from the needs of the world is not a spiritual doctrine. Or put another way, if our doctrine lifts us so high that our feet cannot touch the ground, it is false. Knowledge is the spikes on our cleats, the spikes under our feet that keep us moving forward in action, and it gives us traction with the truth while we move and behave and conduct ourselves. But the thing is, we got to move. What good are the spikes? What traction do they provide if we're not moving? The spikes are the knowledge, and they're only useful when we move. But we also have to remember to put on our spikes, to gain the knowledge so that when we move, it's effective. I coached football this year, and I can't tell you how many times kids came to football practice and forgot their cleats. And they would be wearing their shoes, and the head coach, Eric, would say, dude, where are your cleats? And they're like, oh, I forgot them. And then inevitably, every time, that guy would slip and fall in the middle of practice at some point. Right? Because he's wearing sneakers with no cleats and muddy or wet grass. It just didn't work. What good are your actions without traction, without the knowledge that helps us move forward effectively and efficiently? And what good is the knowledge or the cleats if you don't move? They're inseparable. And without each other, they're worthless. So, what is the result of gaining knowledge and using that knowledge in your conduct? What is the product of not only talking the talk, but walking the walk? So, if you gain knowledge and you start living that knowledge out, you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. What is the product of that walk? What is that walk look like? Because if I just say walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, you could create your own theology here and be like, you know, I think that walking in a manner worthy of the Lord would be like, um, I don't know, uh, giving. And then that's all you do. Or, or it would be serving the church, but you don't do anything else with your life that's godly. You know, just kind of pick and choose what you want to do. Or you could even justify sin and say, this is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. You could say, I'm going to pray to Mary, Jesus' mother. That's, to me, that's walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And you could justify non-truths, or sin, or just doing only certain things that are biblical in your life, if you just leave it at, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we need some definition. We need to know what walking in that way looks like. And verse 10 shows us. Verse 10 says that when you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, this is what it looks like. A life fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we already addressed that knowledge begets knowledge. And as you learn, you learn how to learn, right? So there are these three things. I'm just going to back up here a second. There are th these three things. Fully pleasing to him. If you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, you're fully pleasing to him. 
you're bearing fruit in every good work, and you're increasing in the knowledge of God. So let me first talk about increasing in the knowledge of God. As you learn, you learn how to learn, right? That's one thing I learned in college. I was in school for a very long time. And I could tell you how to, if you were writing a research paper right now and said, I need to, I need to cite this resource in my research paper, I could tell you exactly how to cite it without looking at any book that tells you how to do it because I've done it 10 million times. And I've learned how to learn, right? So I don't need, a, I don't need the, the book that tells you how to cite the source anymore. I just do it because I've done it so many times. So I learned how to learn. And that's what we get with knowledge. So as you are, verse 9, filled with the knowledge of God, your conduct follows and you continue to, verse 10, increase in the knowledge of God. Not only that, but as you are filled with the knowledge of his will, you learn, you learn that his will for you is that you increase in the knowledge of God. So verse 9 tells us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. What we find in verse 10 is that his will is that you increase in your knowledge of him. So if you already learned it, then you'll do it. And if you really learned the knowledge of God's will, then you will increase in the knowledge of God. Your action and conduct to intentionally learn more about God is evidence that you are genuinely filled with the knowledge of his will. Which tells me that people who do not learn, people who do not grow, do not increase in knowledge, are those who are not filled with the knowledge of his will. I can't tell you how many people I have met in church and churches in my lifetime who kind of just bypass knowledge like it's something for the smart people. Oh, that's for the pastors. Oh, that's for the theologians. Oh, that's for people not. I'm just a simple old Christian folk just trying to live my life and do my thing and just get by and I'm here at church. And I hear people literally talk like that. And I just want to grab them and go, no, you have to learn. You have to learn. If you're not, you're not growing. And it means you don't, you're not filled with the knowledge of his will because you're not increasing in the knowledge of God. So there are two other forms of evidence that you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Verse 10 tells us that they are, that you walk, that your walk is fully pleasing to him. And the second one is, you are bearing fruit in every good work. So let's talk about fully pleasing to him. Let's think about that for a second. Living a life that is, keyword, fully pleasing to him. That seems like a pretty tall order, right? Can we really live a life that is fully pleasing to him? Because my life feels more like it's half-pleasing to him. Maybe 75% pleasing to him. Maybe it depends on the day. I mean, I'm usually a good person. I go to church, serve in a ministry, give to the church. I'm a good parent. I'm a nice spouse. I work hard at my job. We all feel that, right? Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just a good guy. I'm just a good person. Do my thing. I, also, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm saved by grace. I, I'm just a... But, you know, 25% of my time, 25% of my life is sin, and I know it, you know. 
So, so my life is, is mostly good, but it's not fully pleasing to him. And then, and then this is what we say. We say, but that's okay. Because I'm just a sinner. Show me in the Bible where it says, or where the believer is given the identity of sinner. It's not in there. It's not in the Bible. The Bible is clear that we used to be sinners. And the Bible is clear that we do still sin. But the Bible is also clear that we are no longer. It's clear that we used to be sinners, that we were dead in our sins, and that we were saved by God's grace and given a gift of faith to believe. But none of the authors in the Bible identified the church as sinners. Instead, Paul calls the church, verse 2, if you go back to verse 2, this letter is written to who? To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ. That is our identity. The word saints there is the Greek word hagias, which means holy ones. That is our identity. That is what the Bible calls us. That is how God identifies us, holy ones, brothers to Christ, and faithful. That is who we are. 2 Corinthians 2.15. I love this. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God is sitting up there in heaven and going, oh man, oh, oh, you, my, my child, you smell like putrid, rotting, stinking, disgusting flesh, and it brings so much joy to my soul to smell the wickedness of your disgusting, ugly sin. Oh, I love the way that your flesh melts off of your body as you pursue hate and evil and worthlessness and you're apathetic and you waste your time and you don't learn, you don't care about me. Mmm, you smell so good. Is that how God responds to us? Is that the aroma that permeates from the believer? Is that what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2.15? No. If we are the aroma of Christ, then it is Christ whom God is smelling. And what does Christ smell like? Perfection. Beauty, strength, and power, glory, compassion, gentleness, purity, holiness, and righteousness. That's what God smells. Holiness. Because that is who you are in Christ. Because if you take that verse a little further, i got to go to it, to 2 Corinthians 2, 15, and think about how we are the aroma of Christ. And then you read verse 16 and 17, it says, who is sufficient for these things? And Paul says in verse 17, for we are not. And right there, those words, for we are not, those are the words that the Christians hang on. They grab those words, we are not sufficient. And that's as 
far as we take it. And that's where we end. And that's where our theology ends. We're like, oh, I'm just a sinner. I'm not good enough. I'm just a wicked old man. I'm just this or that. And we just, we, we, we pretend like it's humility too. And, and we say that we are not. And we identify ourselves with who we used to be instead of who we are. But Paul doesn't just end with we are not. He says, for we are not. Like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul doesn't just end with we are not. He says, we are not, but we are in Christ. That's our identity. That is how we are an aroma that is pleasing, a fragrance of the truth or the knowledge of God to the world. Let's dispense of the language that takes our former identity and attributes it to who we are now in Christ. That's false humility. That's false humility. And we use it for humility. We pretend like it's humility and we're like, oh, I'm not that good of a guy. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of sin in my life. Ask that person. Next time you hear somebody talk about, oh, I'm just a sinner, I want you to ask them a question. Oh, you're just a sinner? Maybe not in a facetious way. I'm being a little facetious right now. Let me try to be more sensitive. If somebody, if a believer is identifying themselves as a sinner, ask them, what sins? You're talking about being a sinner. What are your sins? Tell them to me. Let me pray with you. And let's conquer those things because it's not who you're supposed to be. And you pretending like you're humble by talking about who you used to be is a spit in the face of the gospel. To dwell on your former self, to dwell on this, the nature of who you no longer are is not humility, it is arrogance. It's pretending to be humble, and it's not humble because true humility recognizes God and what God has done for you, and it recognizes the goodness of God to redeem us that while we were sinners and to make us now in Christ and like Christ. True humility acknowledges and boasts not in our wickedness, not in our former identity, not in our sinfulness. True humility recognizes and acknowledges and boasts in the gospel that transforms us into the power of Jesus Christ on this earth. Amen. It's arrogance because it rejects God's glorious gospel and focuses the light on us. Oh, I'm just a sinner. Identifying as a sinner is not humility because it's not gospel-centered. It's not gospel-focused. A gospel focus is focused on God and his work, which was to make you a saint, to make you holy. The biblical authors know that, and that's why they call the Christians saints. That's why Paul starts almost every letter by saying, to the saints. We are not sinners. Right? You don't hear that preached a lot. You are not sinners. You sin, but you're not sinners. It's a matter of our identity and our position versus the, the effectual act and, and, and tangible reality of the life that we live today. 
Positionally, you are not a sinner. You are in Christ. Today, as you live your life, you act out of the flesh and you do sin. I'm not denying that reality. Yes, we sin and yes, we're in the flesh, but God took careful measures to ensure that he never calls us sinners after our salvation. And when he does talk about our sinfulness after our salvation, it's always the former self. Instead, he calls us saints, holy ones, faithful in Christ or like Christ. And that is intentional by God. It's intentional not for your self-esteem. Not so that you can feel good about yourself and call yourself, oh, I am a good person. That's not the point. The point is that you recognize that I was not a good person. That I was a sinner. And by the grace and goodness and love and faithfulness of God, he has made me like Christ. For his glory. So, I say all that so that I can say this. Yes, your life ought to be fully pleasing to him. Not, not, not 50%, not 75%, but 100% fully pleasing to him. And when it's not, we go back to the book, we go back to the source, we learn our lesson, we consult with God, we confess our sins, and we rise up in his forgiveness, purchased by Jesus on the cross, and with the knowledge that we gain from our failure, and we act, and we conduct ourselves, and we move, we move forward and toward a life that is fully pleasing to him. It is our aim, and it is our goal. That is why Peter says in 1 Peter 15, or 1, 15 and 16, be perfect. That's a command, to be perfect. That's insane. You're not perfect. And Jesus is like, yes, you are in me. And your entire life is a process of fulfilling and growing as God works in you and on you of becoming that perfection. And our desire and our aim is to live that life to perfection. And you won't do it. You will fail. You will sin. But that's not who you are. Who you are is perfect. Who you are is fully pleasing to God. And with knowledge of God's will and increase in knowledge of who he is, you will live a life that is fully pleasing to him. And when you don't, you will rise up in his forgiveness and pursue it. Now the last piece of evidence of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is you bearing fruit in every good work. Now, the interesting thing about bearing fruit is that you are not the one who makes the fruit. So this is interesting because if you look at this verse and say, okay, I got to go bear fruit, you can't. I'm telling you, you can't do it. It's not up to you, okay? What you get to do is the other part of this, th these words. You do the good work. God does the fruit, According to 1 Corinthians 3, 7, it's God who produces the fruit. And our job is to do what Paul says in verse 10, every good work. We do the good work, God makes it fruitful. That's how it works. Sometimes we don't always see the fruit. Um, and so we kind of wonder, uh, is what I'm doing good? Because I don't see fruit. The reality is some fruit is so good that it requires an even longer wait to see it come to fruition, right? A year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, early, to, early 2020, right before COVID hit, to give you some context, 
our church was nothing like it is today. Most of you weren't here. I shared with my wife all the struggles of building a church. I share everything with her. So I go home and I mope around the house and complain and whine about everything that isn't going my way. (laughs) She will encourage me, correct me, challenge me, remind me of the thing I preached earlier that day. (laughs) Even though I come home and complain, stand up here and preach like, oh, we ought to be like this. And I go home and I'm like, I don't like my life. And she's like, are you kidding me? You should have heard the preacher this morning, Mark. Maybe you should have listened to him happens. So I remember sharing with my wife the struggles of building God's kingdom. I'd been here for over five years at that point. I'm in the middle of year seven right now. It seemed fruitless to me what we were doing. Five years. Our church was dwindling down and in numbers financially and that's just numbers that's just money that's that's not really important to me I mean it matters but you know what I really saw is like I just don't see a lot of fruit that I wanted to see I don't see the vision I had for this church when I came here five years before it's not happening and I didn't lose faith I didn't get too discouraged I wasn't like oh I might as well quit and leave it wasn't anything like that I was just like where's the fruit God And I was frustrated. I, we saw plenty of fruit in, in a lot of little ways. I mean, there were victories daily and things were happening and there was plenty of evidence of God at work. I'm not saying he wasn't doing anything. It just, I didn't see the, the big picture and big vision of this church that I know it's going to be. And it wasn't happening. And I went to my wife and shared my frustration and convinced my wife that though we don't see fruit, it's worth it. You know? She didn't need the convincing, but I had to tell somebody. It's worth it. These, all these hard conversations, this long, difficult road filled with difficult decisions that are unpopular to, to the world and unpopular to, even to our church, and all these long meetings and all this weighty counseling and all this preaching hard truths and then having to live out those hard truths daily and then all this casting a vision for the church and all these ministries you're trying to start and all these visions I have for what this church can be and for what I see individuals in the church becoming and trying to reach them and disciple them and teach them and talk to them and then they sin and then I gotta have a hard conversation with them and then we we gotta grow together and learn together and then instead of growing together they leave and I'm like don't run away from us stay and build the kingdom and and things were changing and life was hard and for, for everybody in the church and I look at all this labor and labor and labor and I see no fruit. And I'm like, God, what am I even doing here? Why, why, why am I doing this? What's the point if you're not going to make it fruitful? Or, God, am I doing the wrong thing? And that's why it's not fruitful. Am I sticking too hard to my biblical convictions? Do I need to be more culturally relevant so people like it more? Or do I need to be faithful to his word regardless of what people think? And my wife encouraged me one day and she sent me a picture. And the picture was, I was supposed to put it in the PowerPoint and I forgot, duh. So 
Either way, I'll explain it to you. It was a picture of two plants. One plant was a long stem with a flower. Think of like a, a daisy, just a yellow flower. And you could see underground that it only had two tiny little roots. And next to it was a stubby little stem with just one little leaf on it, about one-fifth the size of the big flower. And underground was an entire system of roots. And she wrote, Stay faithful, Pastor Mark. I have an awesome wife. <laughs> she, she, I, that was exactly what I needed to hear. I didn't see the fruit. The, the flower ha- wasn't blooming. It wasn't growing. It, wasn't do- it, it was growing. It wasn't growing in the way that I could see it. What I can't see is God building a root system, a foundation underground upon which that plant will flourish and grow into a tree. The other plant is going to die. Those churches that are building relevant cultural ministries that are based on what's happening in the times, those churches that don't have biblical foundations, that aren't building solid foundations on the word of God based on convictions of truth, those churches, when the storm comes or when the sun is hot, those churches are going to wither. I don't want that for those churches. But I, they're not my church. You are. This is where God has put me. I can't worry about them. I can only love you. And so we're going to build, and we have been building, a deep foundation, deep roots, so that we can grow. And I hope you agree with me when I say it's starting to bloom. I, I think, I mean, I can feel it, right? Like, can you feel the energy that has changed. If you were here a year ago, the energy in this place is a completely different feeling. And most of you don't know what I'm talking about because you weren't here a year ago and that's evidence that something's changing. Right? I mean, can you feel what the Lord is doing in this place? Can you feel it? I can feel it because I was here Friday night for 45 minutes and then I left to go to bed. <laughs> Christian was like, you're not staying, bro? And I'm like, good night. <laughs> just like, have fun. I mean, can you sense the spirit working in this church? Can you tell that God is finally making fruit from our years of labor? I dreamed of a healthy, thriving children's ministry, and now we have Kid Town maxing out of this building. Christian reported last week, last year, or a couple weeks ago, last year we had I think max like 30 some kids, right? 32 kids max last year. And as we got to 32, we were so excited. We had 32 kids, half of them are from the community that we don't know. And these kids are coming here and hearing about Jesus. They're hearing the gospel. That's amazing. This year, we hit that number right away. And then the next week, it was 40 kids. And then the next week, it was 47 kids. And then the next week, it was 63 kids. And I'm just going, okay, God, slow down. Enough with the fruit, man. <laughs> and he's like, well, make up your mind. I mean, you want a fruit? Fine, here you go. And you guys know what I believe. I've said it a million times. Numbers are just numbers. That, that doesn't mean, there are a million churches that have thousands of people. That doesn't mean they're healthy. 
That doesn't mean they have deep roots. But we took six years to plant and to grow and to water and to build a foundation. And so after six years of finally starting to see fruit, I have no problem saying those numbers are evidence and fruit of God at work in this church. Amen. And then we got our youth group. Amen. Last year when I was doing it, there were like, I don't know, 12 kids. And then I, this summer I said, I told Sally, I said, Sally, this is not my calling. This is not my ministry. I will not build that youth ministry. It's not going to happen through me. We need someone else called Drew. I said, Drew, how would you feel about, and he goes, we're on the same page. And I was like, you're the man, dude. And Drew has ta- and, and Sean and, and, and Christian's helping them. So Drew and Sean are building this youth ministry now. Last year we only had a handful, maybe 12. Sometimes we had 15 kids or something like that. Maybe max. Friday night, I'm sure he already reported to you. We had a lock in here. How many kids? 52 kids. 52 teenagers. 6th through 12th grade. Okay. Again, are all those kids going to come back? Are they part of our full-time ministry? I don't know. Yes, okay. <laughs> we believe it. The reality, and what I'm just trying to express to you is, when I came here five years ago, and I, a lot of you have heard this already, but I'm going to say it again for those of you who haven't, I took a post-it note and a Sharpie, and I wrote, Rock Children's Ministry. Stuck it on the wall above my computer and left it there for five years. And I was like, I will not give up on this church until that happens. And we're rocking children's ministry. And it's not on my wall anymore because we're doing it. My point is, sometimes it takes a long time to see the fruit. Sometimes your good work will take years to produce the fruit that you want to see. And you have to be patient. I dreamed of life groups becoming a life-giving ministry to you. When I first got here, I said, we got to do small groups, small groups, small groups. It's got to be a huge part. It's, it's the lifeblood of a church. People relating to each other and loving each other and spending time together and studying the word together. We have to do life groups. And I wanted life groups to become a life-giving ministry to you. And we are finally getting those started. Some have already met. Okay. I'm going to turn on a dime here a little bit. I've heard, speaking of life groups, murmuring and little complaints kind of mingling their way throughout our church about the structure or the groupings or the way or how we have our life groups done. And let me just say, that is not Jesus who's murmuring. Because Jesus doesn't murmur and Jesus doesn't complain. And if it's not Jesus, then who is it? We put a significant amount of time and effort to create a groups for life groups in a very specific manner 
that best suits the long-term growth of this church and the long-term growth of each of you individually. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of thinking, a lot of organizing, a lot of reorganizing, but a lot of effort to make this the right kind of ministry. And a lot of that effort comes, came with some of you coming to us and saying, hey, this change should be made. And we go, thanks for the input. Let's make some adjustments. And we do. And we've made those changes. So this isn't just do, this isn't like a just do what we say kind of thing because the church leaders say we're going to do youth groups, or I'm sorry, uh, life groups this way. This is an intricate piecing together of all of our minds. So if you have any complaints about life groups, that you have not directly talked to me or to Christian about, then here's what's happening. You are digging into the roots of this church and you're killing the plant. Don't be that. Don't complain. Don't murmur. Don't talk about these things. You're just you're creating, you're creating pockets of disunity and dissension and division. Don't do that because I will pop that bubble. You don't want to be in it. If you do have any concerns about anything in life or about church or whatever, come talk to me. I am very open to listening to you. But I have spent way too much, and you have spent way too many years planting and watering and working and laboring for the kingdom of God for someone to just come in in one fail swoop and stick a shovel right into our roots and kill us. So with all that said, I dare not say that Grace Church has fully or finally bloomed. I'm not suggesting that that plant has flourished to its completion. Not at all. Because I believe we are just starting to bloom. Just starting to see the fruit of years of labor and faithfulness from everyone here. Even those of you who are new here, you have years of faithful labor at a different place or at a different portion of your life that you are bringing into this church. That you are a piece of the puzzle that God is building called Grace Church. And we are just a piece of the puzzle that God is building called the kingdom of God. And I dare not say that we have finally bloomed because my vision for this church is way bigger than what we're doing right now. Much more community impact, many more lives saved, much greater ministries that reach much larger groups and make a more significant impact on your individual spiritual growth. We aren't done, but we also aren't just getting started. It is vital that we as individuals pay attention to our own spiritual growth. We cannot get so busy with ministry that we forget the one for whom we are ministering. If we ride on our former laurels, our fruit will shrivel and die. We must continue to increase in the knowledge of God so that we can walk in a manner worthy of Him. And if we do, you will see fruit. Let's pray. Jesus, we trust that you will do the work that you want to do here and we hand over this work to you and ask that you would increase in your people a desire for knowledge of you, that they would be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual understanding and wisdom 
so that we may walk in a manner worthy of you, a life fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. Let that be the mark of who we are at this church as believers, not for the sake of Grace Church, not for the name Grace Church, not for that at all, for you, for the name of Jesus, for the name of your kingdom. Increase our knowledge and help us turn that knowledge into walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.